to find a home, or that word is actually rest. She wants to find rest for Ruth. Uh, She doesn't want Ruth to have to glean her whole life because it's difficult and potentially dangerous, even though she's had a good experience in Boaz's fields. And because of the culture of that time, the way to provide for women was for them to be married. And so Naomi wants uh, Ruth to find a husband and to be able to be cared for. And if you think back to chapter 1, it's actually what she prays for when she prays for Orpah and Ruth, both of her daughter-in-laws. She prays that they would find rest. And so here she's saying, all right, I need to uh, keep working towards that goal, and I want you to be able to find rest in Bethlehem. So she hatches this plan to make it happen, and she tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor where Boaz will be that night. And I don't know about you, but I'm not super familiar with farming and grain and even what a threshing floor is. And so I had to do a little bit of research. Um, And you do have to kind of understand how grain works to know what's happening here. So what is threshing? Uh, It's this process where they're trying to separate the chaff from the grain. So how they would do that is they'd kind of beat it up to kind of break it apart a little bit. So whether that was them beating it themselves doing the hard manual labor or sometimes they had like the animals come around and walk on it to kind of break it up from the chaff and then what they would do at the threshing floor is that they would throw the grain up into the air and the a light breeze would come through hopefully it's windy at the time that they're doing this and the chaff would blow away a little bit and fall and then the grain would fall right in front of them Sounds like a kind of inefficient way to do it, right, for us when we have technology and whatnot, but it's actually pretty smart for what they had, what they had to work with. So they'd throw it up in the air, and then the grain would fall, and the chaff would hopefully blow a little bit of ways away. Uh, And after they did this, so this is kind of what a threshing floor might look like. It had to be a little bit ways away so it could catch some of that breeze that they were hoping for. And then the threshing floor was known to be a little bit of a party place because it's kind of like end of the year celebration. We've got all of our grain. We've harvested it. Especially this year, we know in the book of Ruth, they have had famine for a while. So this is the first time that they've really had a good harvest in a while. And so it was known to get a little bit crazy in certain fields. So think about it as if your office like has a good earning quarter, or you can tell I'm not in business, uh, or something, right? Like something goes well, or you're having a good end-of-the-year party, and you're all celebrating. Um, You see it in TV shows. I don't know if it actually happens in real life, but uh, think about it in that sense, that it's the end of the year, you're celebrating this great harvest, um, and so people were known to have some stuff to drink, maybe get a little crazy. And so when you think about it, Naomi is sending Ruth into a potentially dangerous uh, interesting, to say the least, place. So it's, a, it's a, an interesting plan. And it, then her instructions that she continues to give Ruth get a little stranger yet. So uh, she continues to say, oops, sorry, when he lies down, so when Boaz lies down after he's uh, done all of his threshing, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do okay. Uh, And Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And if you're thinking that this sounds a little risque or a little strange, uh, you would be right. This is a very interesting plan. 
Naomi tells Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet while he's sleeping, which is a strange thing to do. But if I think the thought behind it was, uh, at least what scholars think, is that because, you know, as you sleep the, the, at night, the weather kind of cools down a little bit. So if she uncovered his feet, like in the middle of the night, he might get a little bit cold and kind of wake up, right? So think about it. If you throw all your blankets on the floor and then in the middle of the night, at least I tend to get cold. So then I'll pull all the blankets back on, usually just on my side because Joel doesn't really get cold. <laughs> but you have to, so that's kind of the plan is that she doesn't, Naomi doesn't want Boaz to know that Ruth is there until like the middle of the night when everybody else is asleep. So this is the plan. Uncover his feet and then hopefully he'll wake up in the middle of the night. And it does sound a little bit like maybe innuendos or maybe you're like, is she suggesting more than what we actually would, like a plain reading of the text? And I think the author wants you to live in that tension. Actually, this whole passage is going to sound a little bit like right on the edge of sounding like something that's inappropriate. But I think it's actually a way, and scholars have talked about this, that it's a way for the author to kind of keep you engaged, right? They're like trying to keep you like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Are these characters who so far have been built up as really upright, upstanding, moral people, what are they going to do? How, if they're put into this situation, how's it all going to play out? But the truth is that Naomi's plan is not an illicit one, right? She's hoping that Boaz will propose. She wants Ruth to find a husband. She wants her to find rest. And so she's kind of putting it out there of like, hey, I'm available, or hey, I'm interested. And she's hoping then when she says, he'll tell you what to do, she's hoping that he kind of takes the lead and will propose to her. And this is a very bold plan, right? I just kind of talked about how it could be a dangerous place. Uh, Prostitutes were also known to visit the threshing floor. So if Boaz isn't clear as to what Ruth is doing, he might mistake her for a prostitute or think that she's trying to act like one. So it's very likely and possible that how this plan plays out, that Ruth could get kicked out and her character could be uh, on the line. It's very risky. I was thinking about it, and I was like, if someone came to me, right, as a pastor and said, hey, I have this plan, what do you think? Do you think I should do it? Is this wise? I think I'd say no. (laughs) This is a very risky plan, and I am not, I mean, I'm not super risk-averse, but I'm more risk-averse than maybe some people. And so I would probably say, I don't know if this is wise. I don't know if this is a good idea. And that creates some tension for us as we read the Bible sometimes, right? We read these stories and we're like, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. And yet it's in the Bible. So what do I do with that? So I want to take just a quick sidetrack little thing to talk about the fact that in the Bible, there are some passages that we would call prescriptive and some passages that are descriptive, right? So prescriptive, think like prescription, something that they want you to do. And so we just before Ruth, we went through Ephesians, and Ephesians has a lot of those prescriptive passages, right? A lot of the passages that are saying, here's what it looks like to live in life, uh, in a life that is honoring to God and that reflects your new status in Christ. Um, and then on the flip hand, the other hand, there's flip side, other hand, I combined them. Uh, there's descriptive, and that's more of these stories, right? You see a lot of narrative books are more descriptive. So it's not necessarily saying you should do this. If you're single and you want some guy to propose to you, you should go to his room at night and uncover his feet. 
that's not what it's saying, right? But it is telling a story that helps us understand more of who God is, what he's doing in the world, and then how that impacts who we are as people. So again, if you ever come across that distinction in a book of the Bible when you're reading, ask yourself, is this passage prescriptive or descriptive? And either way, again, always looking to what does this passage teach us about who God is and what he's doing in the world? Okay, so then we get a scene cut as we move forward in the book of Ruth, and we go straight to the threshing floor. So it says, when Boaz has finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, and here they say that the language, it doesn't say that he's drunk, right? Like the language that they're using is not the same language they would use to describe someone who's like way gone. Just means that he had had some things to drink and he was feeling pretty good. And then it says, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So, so far, it looks like she is following all the instructions that Naomi has given her. And then it says, in the middle of the night, something startled the man, presumably this breeze that would cool his feet off. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So again, so far we've seen Ruth being very obedient to what Naomi has told her. And you can imagine that Boaz is pretty confused when he wakes up. Uh, As I was reading this, I was thinking about how, as a kid, I would often get nightmares or, like, not feel good in the middle of the night. And so I would go to my parents' room and wake up my mom. And I always struggled with, like, how do I wake her up that's not going to startle her? And so as a kid, I don't think this was probably the best option. But I would kind of stand there and whisper, like, Mom, Mom. And eventually she would wake up, but she was always very startled to see her child's face, like, right in front of her. So I probably could have found a better way to do that. Um, But I was thinking, Boaz was probably pretty startled by this. This is a a strange thing to happen to him. So he asks, who are you? Good question, given the circumstances. Uh, And Ruth says, I am your servant, Ruth. And then what she says next is pretty crazy. She says, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And if I were reading this to uh, people in the ancient Near East, or maybe even to Jewish people, they would, there would be a collective gasp in the room, because what Ruth does in this passage is crazy for many reasons. So to start off, uh, one thing is just that Naomi told her, sit there and then wait, and he will tell you what to do. Instead, Ruth says, no, I'm going to take this into my own hands. And she just tells him what to do. It's not like she's even asking. She says, hey, this is what you're going to do. So that in itself, she she doesn't do what Naomi tells her to do. She's also a woman. And as we talked about earlier in this series, this was a very patriarchal culture. So for her to just say, hey, here's what you're going to do, would have been shocking in and of itself. And then you also have to take into consideration all of the the big status differences between Ruth and Boaz that we've been talking about, right? She was widowed, she was poor, she was barren, and she was a foreigner. And this guy is her boss. (laughs) It's another added thing to this. So she basically goes and tells him, uh, spread the corner of your garment over me, which, again, sounds to us a little strange. What does that mean? But in the ancient Near East, it was a common... um, image or symbol of marriage, of a man protecting a woman in that sense that Naomi is hoping Ruth will have, right, to find that rest and to find comfort. So she basically just proposes to her boss, even though she is miles and miles below him in status, 
and it's the middle of the night. This whole thing is just a very strange piece of the story. And she doesn't stop there. She then goes on to say, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And if you were here last week, you probably remember Joel talked a little bit about this guardian redeemer concept. And it was kind of like someone in the family um, had the option to, and kind of the requirement or duty, to care for their relatives by buying back property that they've lost through like poverty or, in this case, death. So she kind of combines these two laws, this idea that like if you're a close relative, you're supposed to marry the person whose spouse dies, and this idea of the guardian-redeemer thing where you're also supposed to buy the land back. So she kind of says, like, hey, I want you to marry me. I want to have kids. And I want you to buy this big piece of land for our family. Very bold. Very surprising. None of these, the way she combines these laws is very um, unconventional. And Boaz isn't necessarily required to follow these. So she's really appealing to his grace in a big way. She's taking a big risk knowing he doesn't have to necessarily follow through on these things. But I'm going to ask him to anyways. What would prompt her to do something like this? We might look at Ruth and say, well, she's just a woman who knows what, she's want, what she wants and she's not afraid to go get it. And on one hand, that's true. But the truly amazing thing about what Ruth is doing here is that she's not doing it for herself. It's probably unlikely that she was super interested in Boaz, a guy who is twice her age, um, is closer in age to her mother-in-law than to her, and who she honestly doesn't know very well. So it's not like this... Uh, romantic comedy type of a thing where she's trying to, you know, take matters into her own hands and get the guy that she wants. She's doing this because she is trying to provide for Naomi. So if you remember, so far in the book of Ruth, Ruth has already left her homeland and gone with Naomi to be with her into Bethlehem. Even though she knew it was going to be hard, they were going to be poor, she would have to do the hard work of gleaning, but she sacrificed things to care for Naomi. And it's not any different here. She's continuing to do that. And so because the main conflict for Naomi is that her family line is not going to be continued. Remember we talked about how that was like a really big deal to them. Ruth is trying to rescue that. She is trying to provide and serve Naomi uh, so that their family line will still continue. She's volunteering to bear a son that will continue the line, even though, again, as we've learned about Ruth so far, She had 10 years where she was barren and wasn't able to bear children. So she's opening herself up to that disappointment again and saying, I'm going to try to serve Naomi and to care for this family, even though it might be really difficult for me and it might cost a lot of my personal choice. So Naomi told Ruth to go to Boaz in hopes of finding rest for Ruth. But Ruth had her own plan, and she went to Boaz with hopes of finding rest for Naomi. And Boaz picks up on this right away. He knows exactly what she's doing. And he says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. So again, he's referring back to when Ruth left her family and her homeland to be with Naomi. And he's saying, This act of kindness, this act of sacrificial love of hesed, that word that we've been talking about, is even greater than what you've done before. He says, You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. 
So he realizes that this is a big sacrifice for her. And again, right, this is not a rom-com. When he says, uh, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, he's not saying this of like, oh, you chose me even though you could have had these better-looking guys or these younger guys. He's not saying that. He's saying, you chose to give up your personal choice in deciding who to marry or how to do this by serving Naomi. He's uh, encouraging her or praising her because of her sacrificial love and her desire to care for Naomi. He's impressed by her. He calls her a woman of noble character or a woman of honor or valor. So Caroline Custis James, when she talks about this passage, says that the reality is that Ruth isn't seeking a husband for herself. Still committed to her vow, she is battling for Naomi. And in an act of unparalleled faith, Baron Ruth volunteers to bear a son. Boaz understands what she's doing for Naomi's family, and he's awestruck. He blesses and praises her for her hesed, that loving kindness, for Naomi, and calls her a woman of valor. Boaz is rejecting the culture's value system regarding women by valuing Ruth not for her beauty, her male connections, or her ability to produce a son, but for her character and her radical, sacrificial love for Naomi. So, as a quick aside... Ruth is not a book about dating, right? We talked about this earlier. People like to make it into like a lesson of like who you should date and how that should go. But if you're going to take any takeaways about dating from this book, take away the fact that character is key, right? He praises her for her character, not for all these other things. And I used to work in our job before we planted this church. I was a women's ministry director, and so I got a lot of questions about dating and, like, should I marry this guy or not? Uh, How do I know if I should marry someone? And one of the things I always said is look at his character. Is he on a trajectory, or she? I was just a women's director, so I was always talking about it from that perspective. But is the person that you're thinking about marrying, are they on a trajectory that shows that they are growing in Christ-likeness and that their character is something that's of value and importance to them? Because that's going to last way longer than whatever compatibility you feel like you have now, right? People change, lifestyles change, interests change, but character is going to stay the same. And so that's, if you're going to take anything away from the book of Ruth about dating, take away the fact that character is key. Okay, so... We get to this point in the story, it seems like everything's going well, right? Ruth makes her really bold request, and instead of laughing in her face or kicking her out, Boaz says, yes, I will do it. I will do everything you've asked. But we are still in the second act of the story, and so there are still more obstacles for our characters to overcome. So Boaz continues on, and he says, Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So we think the way that this guardian redeemer law worked is that it was kind of the whoever was like first in line had first dibs on the land. And so Boaz, again, man of character, is trying to follow the practice, and he says, there's actually someone else who is, has first dibs on this before me. And so if we are going to do this, if I'm going to help you and uh, buy this land, we need to make sure we go through all the proper channels and that this guy gets a, a chance to redeem it if he wants to before I decide if I want to. And then he tells her, stay right here until the morning. 
again, sounds a little sketchy, like what's going to happen at this night while they're there? But as we've seen, the characters are so far presented to be very upright um, and people of high character. So it makes most sense that he's looking out for Ruth because, again, they don't have electricity. So it would have been really dark to try and send her back home in the middle of the night would have been dangerous and probably not a great idea. So he says, stay here. And then in the morning, we'll send you home before anyone else sees you so that people know, even though we know nothing happened, then everybody else will not have any questions in their mind either. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the the threshing floor. Again, he wants to keep uh, everybody knowing that they are still moral people, that nothing happened. Uh, And he said, bring me your shawl that you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. So even though nothing happened, Ruth leaves early so that no one will see, and he sends her home with this gift of barley. And some people question, like, is this some kind of, like, bride price? You know, in in ancient times, there used to be, like, you have to pay a certain amount to the family in order to marry someone. But that was probably unlikely. It's more likely that this is just a symbol of good faith, right? He said, I will take care of this, and I want you and I want Naomi to know that I plan on taking care of it. So here's my symbol that I'm going to do this. It's kind of like a promise ring or something. I don't know. Do people still wear promise rings? Is that a thing? Um, Okay, so he sends her home, and then we'll wrap up the the story here. Uh, When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until this matter is settled today. So here you see that this gift, this gift of barley, is really more for Naomi than for Ruth. Uh, in chapter 1, if you remember back to that, Naomi talks about how she went away full, but she came back to Bethlehem empty. And she's bitter, and she has all of these questions uh, and frustrations about her circumstances. And here we see that Boaz says, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So we get to see, as we have throughout this whole book of Ruth, the ways that God is providing. Even though we don't see him in the text or in the story, we can still see his hand guiding the characters and guiding their actions uh, in a way that actually answers a lot of the prayers that have been prayed in the first half of the book. So we see that um, he says, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And he's showing Naomi that their circumstances have changed, right? Again, it's the symbol of good faith uh, that Naomi's prayer that she would find, that Ruth would find rest is also going to be answered, either through this other guy who has first dibs or through Boaz. So as we wrap up the chapter and think about where to go from here, I want us to reflect on the fact that Jesus said to his disciples, all of the Old Testament pointed to him. And normally when we read the book of Ruth, uh, you might hear people talk about how Boaz really points to, to Christ. And we're going to see that next week, so I won't spoil any of that. Uh, Joel will talk about that then. But I think it's true that as we look at this passage, we see that Ruth and her actions also point to Jesus in a certain way. We see that Ruth was willing to make a huge personal sacrifice by sacrificing her choice in marriage and opening herself up to the shame and disappointment of being barren again, potentially, as she tries to bear a son. 
And she makes all of this sacrifice for the good of her family. She makes a personal sacrifice to keep her family line going. And this is exemplary in itself, but I don't think it's supposed to stop there. It's supposed to point us toward someone else who made an even bigger personal sacrifice to keep his family line going. And we see that in the story of Jesus. John 1, 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, it's talking about Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So even though we were all created in the image of God, because of sin, we're, we were separated from him, until Jesus gave up everything, he gave up his life to come to earth, live as the truly obedient child of God, the truly righteous one, and then he made the biggest personal sacrifice you could make by dying on the cross so that we could be adopted into the family of God, that we could become children of God through believing in him, not through the family line, but through faith in God. And this ability to join the family of God is open to anybody through Christ. So my first application point, as we kind of wrap things up, is I want to ask, are you a part of the family of God? Because as the book of Ruth has foreshadowed, you don't have to have a certain skin color, be from a certain country, have a certain job, or a certain amount of money to be a part of this family. As it said in John 1, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and accept him and receive him as your Savior and as your Lord. And this is, you'd be accepted into a family that's led by the all-loving, all-merciful, all-just, all-powerful Father. So I don't know what your experience with family was like growing up. I don't know if it was great or if it was difficult. But either way, I can tell you that this family, this family of God, is going to blow all other families out of the water. Because it's founded on Jesus' sacrificial love, his willingness to die for us, uh, to be a part of the family of God. And the inheritance of being part of this family is not just a big piece of land, it's eternal life. We get to live in peace with Christ and with God and with everyone all together uh, in, the, in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's our inheritance that we get when we believe in Christ and accept him as our Savior and our Lord. So if you haven't yet, I'd ask you to consider it. So it's a great family invitation, probably the best family invitation you'll ever receive. And so uh, if that's something that you're thinking about, I'd ask you to think about that uh, throughout this rest of this time. And then the second thing I want us to think about is to, if you are a part of the family of God, to experience the benefits of it, right? Every family has certain things that they might have that go along with being a part of that family. Some of them are good. Some of them might be hard or not so great, um, but if you think about the things that are good that you might have with a family, right? Maybe your family owns a cabin. We've got one community group that's all up at a family cabin this weekend, right? So maybe you have that. Or maybe some of your relatives are really good at fixing cars or um, helping with house projects or knowing how to answer tax questions or those types of things, right? If you have those things as a part of your family, you take advantage of it, right? You go up to the cabin. You call your dad or your mom or whoever when your car breaks down. This is something that you get as a benefit of being part of that family. And there are a lot of benefits of being a part of the family of God. Right? We already talked about our inheritance, about eternal life. We also have access to God through prayer all the time to the most powerful person in the entire universe. So if we're willing to call our parents or whatever when our car breaks down, 
we should think about that in terms of how we interact with God, that we take advantage of that benefit, that we have access to him in prayer. Or things like the word of God, right? He's given us a book that tells us all about who he is and what it means to follow him. We have access to that. We also have access to things like the fruit of the spirit, peace, joy, love. Uh, When we walk in step with the fruit of the spirit, we get those things as a benefit of being a part of the family. So take advantage of those things, right? It's not like if you don't use it, you lose it or something like that, right? The cabin's still there, but it's not of much use to you if you don't go. So use the benefits of being a part of the family of God. You don't have to strive for your identity anymore. Walk in the peace and freedom of what it means to be a part of that family. And then along the same lines, my second point is participate in the family of God. As you've probably noticed in the book of Ruth, their culture is very heavy on family loyalty and, uh, right, like you have to buy back your dead relative's land or all these different things to take care of one another. Uh, And we live in a very individualistic culture, right? It's kind of almost frowned upon or shameful if you have to rely on your family, right? If you live in your parents' house or if you, you know, accept money or assistance from your relatives, it's kind of like, oh, wow, you couldn't figure out how to do it on your own. But that's not how it works in the family of God. In the family of God, we carry each other's burdens. We make sacrifices of our time to care for one another. We live in community. We share and we're vulnerable with one another. So I want to challenge you. Are you participating in the family of God? And I don't just mean like, oh yeah, I come on Sunday or I attend my community group weekly. Again, you can go without fully participating. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to ask for help. You have to be willing to give help to others to truly experience what it's like to participate in that family. And every week, we basically have a big family meeting, right? This is what we do on Sundays. But again, you can come and still not feel like you're fully participating. To fully participate means to get involved in the lives of other people and take advantage of that, but also give, right? You're not just called to take advantage of it, but to sacrifice in the way that we've seen Ruth do so far and then also that we see in the perfect example of Christ. So I want us to be thinking about that as we move into this time of communion we're gonna, and worship. Uh, because communion is a great example of coming together as a family to proclaim what Christ has done. To acknowledge that he has made the ultimate sacrifice and that we are part of his family because of it. And you'll notice that communion is always done corporately, right? Like that's not something that you typically like do in your room at home by yourself. And it's because we're called to come together and to do this uh, as a family to remember what we've been founded on, what this family is all about, and how we can do it with one another. So as we do communion, I want you to think through these questions uh, and really um, listen to what God might be saying to you about what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. So we're going to take communion. As we do that, you can come up and take a piece of bread and a cup of juice. Um, And then we're also going to be worshiping through song while we do that. And one other way that we view as a response to God is through giving. So if you'd like to give, there's a box in the back, or you can do that online as well. All right, please pray with me as we move into this time of communion and worship. Father, we thank you that you truly are the good and perfect Father. And we praise you that you have given us things like the story of Ruth and other places in your word that point us to who you really are as a father and what that means for us as the family of God. We confess that we don't always act like we're a part of the family. We want to be individuals and we uh, don't 
think to stop and make time for one another and to practice that sacrificial love that we see in Ruth and also in you. So we ask that you would unite us, that you would bring us together as a family, and that we would be a church and a place that is characterized by sacrificial love for you and for one another. And that this would be an example to the world around us, uh, that it would be inviting, that it would be a family that others would want to be a part of, not because of us, but because of you. We pray all these things in your perfect name. Amen.